Good morning, everyone. My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at Deer Creek Church, and I'm also a church plant resident, which means I've been called on here in order to, and with the aims of planting a church in the fall of 2021. And if you are interested in church planting, I just want to give a plug to uh, Brett Weston. Brett Weston is another church planting resident here at Deer Creek, and he is looking to plant a church in Centennial in the fall of 2019. So if that's something that interests you, we really believe that God is reaching new people uh, with the gospel through churches, and that's, that, that is God's main way in which he reaches people. So if that's an interest of you uh, or an interest for you, I'd encourage you, go and speak with Brett Weston. I'd be a great person to talk to. I also want to point out that I'm Irish. So, <laughs> this is my holiday, right? Yeah, you can applaud. That's great. Yeah, yeah. All right. Some people went a little more out. I just decided one green shirt, but. So if you're just joining us this morning, over the course of the last several months, we've been working on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus's most important and probably most well-known sermon that he ever delivered. And we're gonna take a break from that for the next two weeks. And we're gonna focus on a topic that I would argue is probably one of the most important teachings of Jesus' ministry. In fact, I would argue that it is the essence and it's the central part of the gospel. And that is eternal life. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about eternal life and what Jesus has to say about it. But before we do that, before we jump in this morning, let's pray together that God would help us and guide us in this teaching. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray now that you would teach us. And we ask that you would do what we can't do, and that is give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you want us to know about this subject, a subject that was so dear to you, the subject of eternal life. And I pray that you would teach us now. I pray that you would help us apply these things to our hearts and our minds and our lives and that you would give us eyes to see the eternal life that you offer in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, I remember it was February 2014 and I was sitting in a classroom at Vanderbilt Divinity School is where I did my graduate school work and I was just preparing for a midterm. I had studied very hard up to that point and right before the exam started, I got a call from my wife And my wife's not the type of person who typically would give me a call throughout the middle of the day. So immediately when I saw it was her, I sensed that something might be wrong. So I grabbed my phone and I ran out of the classroom into the hallway and I answered and I could tell immediately something was wrong. And if you've ever been married, if you have a husband or a wife, you can kind of sense these things when your spouse calls you. You can sense that something just isn't quite right. And I could hear Hannah sobbing on the other end of the line. And through her, her tears, I could hear her say, Abby died. Abby was Hannah's grandma who had suffered from Alzheimer's. And I, I never really knew Abby the way other people remembered her. The way other people remembered Abby was she was the type of person who she would be reading a book and she would know right off the top of her head, I know five people who need this book. And 
She was the type of person who would write you handwritten notes, not, not just little sticky pad notes, but she would write you two, three, four page letters just because she was thinking about you on a Tuesday. This is the coolest story that I remember from her. She said that, or her family says that they would gather around Abby every single morning before they went to school, her children would, and she would say a blessing over them because she didn't love, like the thought of, their ki- of her kids going out to school without God's protection and blessing over them. Recently, we were kind of decorating our house and we stumbled uh, across these pictures and there was a picture of Abby, Hannah's grandma, and Abba, Annie, Hannah's grandpa, and Hannah looked at it and said, this, this is how I remember her. So full of life. What, what happens to loved ones when they die? That, that is a immensely practical question. In fact, what, what happens to us when we die? You know, today when we think of, of practical things, maybe practical questions, we think of marriage, right? We think of how do I relate to my spouse better? How do I communicate with my spouse better? How do we fight fair? That's how my, my wife, that's what we talk about. How do we fight fair? Or we think about our finances. Think about, okay, how do we make ends meet? How do we save enough money for a certain goal that we want to attain? Or we think about work, right? Think about our relationships. How do I deal with my boss? How do I handle my colleague? How do I handle my coworker? Yet we know that there is one thing that every single person will face, every person in this room, and that is that every single one of us will ultimately die. I haven't checked recently. Is the mortality rate still 100%? Is that right? All right. Jesus doesn't count. See, the Bible, the Bible speaks so often about death. In fact, it's one of the central things that the Bible talks about. And, and in Scripture, when God wants to communicate something to us and he really wants to grab our attention, what he uses is repetition. That's what the biblical authors would do is they would use repetition. See, when we type out an email, we put stuff in italics or we put it in bold or we underline it. That didn't exist back then. So what they would do is they would repeat words. Remember when God created the world? We're told that he creates life. He creates the moon and the stars, and he says of it all, he says, it is good, and he repeats it after everything he creates. It is good, it is good, it is good. And then he looks at everything that he's created, and he says, behold, it is very good. And then the next time that we see that same pattern, that same repetition, it's four chapters later, after Adam and Eve have sinned, after they've taken from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, we're told this, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. It's no longer, it is good, it is good, it is good. The repetition is death, death, death. 
the Bible, when it speaks about life, it talks about it as something that's fleeting, something that's like a breath. In fact, one of the biblical authors, his name is David. He has musings on, on what life is about. And he's, he asks God this, he says, "'O Lord, make me to know my end, "'and what is the measure of my days? "'Let me know how fleeting I am. "'Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths.'" Hand breaths, uh, the hand, the, the width of your hand, in the ancient world was a unit of measurement because they didn't have yardsticks, they didn't have rulers. How they would measure things is by hand. And so what David is saying is look to your left as far as your eye can see, and then now look to your right as far as your eye can see. If that is time, our breath or our life is just a few hand breaths. David continues, my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Think about your breathing real quick, right? We're all breathing right now. Think about breathing. On average, a person at rest takes about 16 breaths per minute. This means we breathe about 960 breaths an hour, 23,040 breaths a day, 8,409,600 breaths a year, and the person who lives to take to 80 will take about 672,768,000 breaths. And you know how long our life is? What I want to convince you out over the next two weeks, what I want to convince you is that if you have never considered death and eternity, then you have actually missed the heart of Jesus's message. See, Jesus spoke plainly and regularly on this reality, a reality we don't like to talk about. He spoke regularly on eternal life in heaven and eternal life in hell. And the encouragement throughout scripture is if you think that Christianity, if you think following Jesus, if you think spirituality, if you think religion is just about peace and security and happiness in this life, then scripture says something completely contrary to that. In fact, so much so, one of Jesus' earliest followers, his name was Paul, put it this way. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Misguided, maybe. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that we are to be thought of as pitiful if it's only about this life and this life now. So here's what I want to do this morning. What does the Bible say about heaven? What does the Bible say about heaven? That's our subject this morning. And what I want to do is I want to offer us three pictures Three pictures about what the Bible says about heaven. And if you're here this morning, maybe you're like me, there, there are a lot of books now, and I have to say this, there are a lot of books now that, that claim to have people that, that go to heaven and then come back and they tell the story of what they saw there. And when I was in college, in fact, I read one of these books and it gave me tremendous encouragement. But, but here's the caution that I have for you, is that when we look at all of these different books and we look at the central claims that they make, they all or many of them contradict one another. So what I wanna do is I wanna give you an assurance and an encouragement about what God says 
about heaven, what scripture says about heaven, and let that be your source of encouragement this morning. So if you're here with me, again, three pictures about what the Bible says about heaven. So let's look at the first picture that scripture gives us of heaven, and this is repeated throughout the Bible, is that heaven is earthly. It's the first thing I want you to know is heaven is earthly. I find it fascinating. You know, the earliest Christians, uh, they were so heavily persecuted by the Roman government that they had to meet underground. And in meeting underground, they would meet in what are known as catacombs. Catacombs were essentially a graveyard under the earth. And they would have tombs in these underground channels and tunnels. And if you look at the, the catacombs or, or the, the uh, graves of ancient Christians, they actually have pictures on them that display what heaven looks like. And one historian, when he was looking at these pictures and he was studying these pictures, said that these pictures on the catacomb walls portray heaven with beautiful landscapes, meaning trees and stars and rivers and grass and fields. He said that he always saw children playing and people feasting at banquets. In other words, their vision of heaven, the earliest Christian, Christian community, their vision of heaven looked a lot like earth. In other words, their vision of heaven wasn't something that was out there that we traveled to when we died. And by the way, the Bible does say that when we die in this life, we will depart to be with the Lord. But their hope was in something greater. Their hope was not that they were going to go out there. Their hope was that God was going to come back here. And now, where did they get this view? Where did they get this view of heaven? Well, we see this kind of repeatedly throughout Scripture, that God's mission is to bring heaven down to earth. If you remember the story, it begins in Genesis chapter 11. It's the story after God had flooded the earth. He starts over with this new creation. He brought judgment on the earth in a great worldwide cataclysmic flood. And through one family, the family of Noah, God saved a people. And these people gathered together, ultimately and eventually, in the city of Babylon. And we're told that they did this. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower, with its top in the heavens. See, what they were saying there, if, if you don't know what that word tower is, in the Bible, that's actually the word ziggurat. You don't have to remember that, by the way. There's no quiz after this. But it was a ziggurat. And what a ziggurat was, it was, it was like an ancient temple. It was an ancient pyramid with staircase on the outside. And what would happen is that people would take a sacrifice and then they would bring that sacrifice up to the staircase. They would go up into the heavens and they would offer God a gift that they thought God wanted. So you see what these people were doing is they were making a temple, putting an image of God made in man's image at the top and then going up to heaven in order to give a gift to those gods. So what, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is that these people have actually turned the entire relationship upside down. Think, think about how God created the world for a moment. See, God didn't tell us to build him a temple. Instead, God builds a temple. God builds a temple. He creates an entire universe, and then he creates an earth. And then in that earth, he places creatures made in his image. And then what happens? God comes down and he meets 
with his creatures. He talks face to face with his creatures. He walks in the cool of the day, the Bible says, with these creatures. So see what God is saying, don't build a temple to go up to God. What we see is that God builds a temple and comes down to us. And then we we see this in the book of Exodus too. In the book of Exodus, there's this man named Moses and God gives Moses a pattern for this thing called a tabernacle. And after Moses makes this tabernacle, we're told in the book of Exodus that the glory of the Lord descended and the Lord filled the tabernacle. Again, we see God coming from heaven down to earth. And then again, about a thousand years later, there was this man named Solomon. He was king over Israel. He builds a tabernacle as well. And then we're told that after he prays over this tabernacle and he dedicates this tabernacle, we're told that the fire, that fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. So see, over and over and over again, God descends. He's bringing heaven down. He's bringing his presence down to earth. And, and this is what happened with Jesus, right? Think about it. Jesus is the eternal son of God. And he comes down. And he takes on flesh. He becomes God and man in one person. So, so what is God showing us through all this? Well, God is showing us that heaven is not a place that we go and depart to live out our existence eternally as spirits somewhere out there. But God is showing us this repeated pattern that what his plan ultimately is, is to bring heaven down here, to make heaven and earth one. And, and this, is, this is the central part too of the message of Jesus. See, the central message that the earliest followers of Jesus proclaimed was that Jesus was raised from the from the dead, that Jesus stepped out of the grave even though he was dead and in a grave for three whole days. And God was showing us in that, that he's not just crumpling up this world, he's not crumpling up our bodies and just tossing them away, but instead he's showing us that he will one day bring these bodies, this creation, this entire world back to spiritual life to have fellowship and communion with him. And when Paul talks about this, the apostle Paul talks about this and he uses the term first fruits. And what he meant by that is he had this image of a farmer, right? This was an agricultural society. And he was imaging this farmer who would run out to the field and look at his harvest. And he would notice that, hey, the first grapes had come in. And he knew because those grapes had come in that more was to come after it. And so Paul is saying this, because Jesus, who was the first fruit, was resurrected and did not stay in the grave, we also have confidence that there is more to come. That we too will one day step out of the grave. You can put it this way, heaven will be a resurrected people living in a resurrected creation with a resurrected Jesus. Let me say that again. Heaven will be a resurrected people living in a resurrected creation with a resurrected Jesus. And that's good news, right? I once heard a pastor who was recently interviewed and here's what he said. Whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. I just can't stand the thought of that endless tedium to float around on clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. 
It's all so terribly boring. I'd rather not spend eternity in a place like that. I'd have to agree. Anybody else? See, heaven is not just a place out there that we go to become less human. Jesus, who is the first fruit, shows us that heaven is a place where we will be truly human. God will raise up these bodies, these bones, these eyes, these ears, and he will raise them up to be with him eternally on this earth, and heaven and earth will be one. See, God made us physical creatures, right? He gave us desires, He gave us emotions, he gave us senses, affections, he gives us relationships, he gives us meaningful work and hobbies. And this God says that he will bring heaven down to earth, earth and heaven will be one. So if you want to imagine what heaven will be like, do not close your eyes and imagine something that's unimaginable. Open your eyes. See this world In fact, these are the very last words, some of the last words that the Bible gives us is it says, when God comes again, his words from the throne will be, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So heaven is earthly. That's our first point. And I got a second point. Thank you for staying with me as I give you an Old Testament overview, right? Second point is this, that heaven will be unearthly. Heaven will be unearthly. See, that's my humor, and nobody gets it, <laughs> right? I'm not trying to be confusing. I promise I'm not trying to contradict myself or confuse you. See, the Bible speaks about this world in two ways, okay? The Bible speaks about this world first as an object of God's love because it is God's creation. He looks at us and he loves us as his creatures. But the Bible also speaks about this world in a second way, and that's this, that this world is not the way that God intended. The current state of this world, full of pain, evil, suffering, and death, this world as it stands right now is not God's intention. And and you don't have to look far to see this, right? For example, think about life in the United States in this year, 2019, okay? We live in this time in the wealthiest era, era in human history. We also live with the lowest infant mortality rate that this world has ever known. We live with almost the longest life expectancy that this world has ever known. And we live now in the United States with the greatest access to health care ever. Yet on the other hand, right, all of this prosperity is tainted in some way. All of our prosperity is touched by evil. In 2012... 16 million American adults had a major depressive episode. That's 7% of the population having a major depressive episode. Since 1999, there have been 13 mass school shootings with double-digit fatalities and serious injuries. The Washington Post, I just saw this recently, that despite our technological connection, the Washington Post says that 18 to 22-year-olds are the loneliest generation in American history. And this stat blows my mind, 25% of the world's prison population, that's one quarter, one out of every four of the world's prison population is here in the United States. And those are just statistics. What about your own life? What about the brokenness and the pain and the suffering in your own life? I remember the first time that, I remember the first time I realized this world is not as God intended. I was a sophomore in high school And 
my brother called me and said, hey, did you know what happened? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, flip on the TV. So I flip on the TV and I go to the news and right there, front headline was a, a boy named Chase Miller. Chase Miller was one of my best friends growing up. I played baseball with him since I was in kindergarten. And the night before, Chase Miller got into a car with a man whose blood alcohol content was double the legal limit. And you know the rest of the story. This world is not as God has intended it. A man named Richard Dawkins, he's a famed atheist. He's part of this new movement called New Atheism. In one of his recent books, he wrote, this universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no creator, no design, no purpose, no evil and good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. The Bible says the complete opposite of the philosophy of Richard Dawkins. The Bible teaches that God is not indifferent to suffering. God is not indifferent to death, evil, and pain. In fact, the Bible says that when Jesus returns, he will judge sin. He will judge evil. He will judge suffering. Jesus will remove and alleviate pain. He will punish evil and he will put death to death. This world will be radically changed. And, and that's why Jesus talks so much about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. See, what happens when Jesus comes? He says he's bringing the kingdom of God. He's bringing the kingdom of heaven. And what do we see happen when Jesus does that? We see the sick are healed. We see the lame walk, blind people see. Death, here, sinners are forgiven. The dead are raised from their grave. In other words, Jesus was saying, do you wanna know what heaven will be like? Look at what I'm doing. Look at the works that I'm doing. I have come to reverse the curse of this world. I have come to put this world back in right order because this world is not as God has intended it to be. And, and I wanna be very clear at this point, all right? See, the basic problem with the world, according to Jesus, the basic problem with this world as it stands right now is not education, right? Sometimes we think that, well, if we just had enough education, if we just had enough know-how, then we could patch up the problems of this world and we could alleviate all world suffering. And, and there is some measure of truth to that, right? We can grow in knowledge, we can alleviate some measure of suffering, and we can do good in this world. But Jesus says that actually the basic problem with this world as it stands right now is human sin. Human sin is the problem of this world and it's sin that resides in every individual human heart. See, when Adam and Eve took from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, they, they weren't just eating fruit. What they were doing is they, they were distorting and they were tearing at the very fabric of God's creation. 
When we sin, that is what we're doing. We are twisting and we are distorting and we are maligning God's fabric of creation. I I don't know anything about sewing or knitting. My wife does, but she's not here on the second service. So I can't call her up for expert advice. But I've heard if you have a Persian rug, that these are like very intricate rugs that take years and years and years to construct. And that if you would take just one of the threads of these Persian rugs and you were to tear at it, that it would actually destroy and distort and twist the entire rug itself because it's so intricately woven together. You pull one string and it twists and distorts the entire thing. The Bible says the same thing is true when we sin. When we sin, we pull at the very fabric of God's creation and we twist and distort even the good things that God has given us. So now when we try and love, it's twisted and distorted by lust. And when we try and live lives of contentment, it's twisted by greed. Or when we want to be more thankful people, it's twisted by jealousy and envy. And and when we're passionate about something, it's twisted by anger and hatred. This is, this is probably one of my favorite uh, quotes. Uh, this man named G.K. Chesterton, he lived during the 20th century. And in England, they had posted this thing in a newspaper that said, please respond, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton wrote to this newspaper and he wrote, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> See, what Chesterton saw was that we are the greatest threat to God's creation. And that when Jesus comes back to restore this world, to bring the kingdom of heaven in full, he's saying that he is not just going to end sin and suffering and evil out there in the world with those people. No, he says he's coming and he's going to change it fully and finally in us. And By placing faith in Jesus, God is not just giving us a free ticket to heaven. He's actually making us more and more creatures of heaven now, today. I was recently sitting with a guy uh, over lunch and he's really exploring the Bible and, and thinking about God and Jesus for the first time. And as we're sitting across from each other, in having this encounter with God, he said to me, I am so afraid. And then he leaned over and said, but Daniel, I am changing. See, heaven is not just something we're waiting for, but it is breaking in now. And by having our faith in Jesus, the Bible says that we are actually born again. The translation, if you've ever heard about a born again Christian, the translation is actually born from above. We are born from heaven. God is taking our sinful bodies now and he is turning us into new creatures, heavenly creatures, and he is transforming us more and more and more like the son of heaven who came down in order to give us this new life. So, so the question is, if we're becoming heavenly creatures, they'll, well, what happened to our old life? What happened to our old habits? What happened to our old person? Well, the answer to that is that they were crucified and punished on the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus took our sins, took our sorrows, took every wrong thing that we have done on himself and he died the death that we deserved for them. That's what's happened to our old life. Jesus, who is the son of heaven, descended and went to the depths of hell on the cross to make us creatures of heaven. 
and it starts now. So you've been patient with me thus far. Thank you. And I want to give you these good views of what the Bible says about heaven because it really comes down now to this last and central point. See, what we've heard already is a hopeful message, right? A hopeful message that heaven will be earthly, that heaven and earth will one day be one, that heaven will be unearthly, that God will remove and judge sin and death in us and in the world. But our, hev- our heavenly picture is incomplete if we don't mention this last point, and it is that heaven is Jesus-centered. Heaven is Jesus-centered. That's our third picture. One man, his name was Thomas Goodwin. He lived during the 16th and 17th centuries. And he, he once had this quote. He said, if I were to go to heaven and I found that Jesus wasn't there, I would quickly depart because a heaven without Jesus would be hell to me. And I gotta be honest, when I think of heaven, that's not often how I think about it, right? I usually think about it kind of like the, the Simpsons, right? In the Simpsons, what is heaven like? Heaven is the place where you finally get to do the things you couldn't do in this life, right? All the restrictions are off. You got to do all the things, all the bad things you couldn't do here, you got to do there. But, but Jesus says the greatest thing, the best thing about heaven is not that we get to do those things, but that we get to live with him. Jesus, in fact, before he departed, before he went to the cross and before he was buried and before he was raised again on the third day, he was talking to his disciples, his followers, who were, who were grieving, who were mourning at the thought of the loss of Jesus. And he comforted, him, comforted them with these words. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus is saying the best thing about heaven is that it is where Jesus is. In heaven, absolutely everything will be done in the presence of Jesus. In heaven, we will eat in the presence of Jesus. In heaven, we will work in the presence of Jesus. We will literally worship in the presence of Jesus. Jesus will rule and reign over everything. And this is maybe the most controversial point, that the people we share eternity with, they will all be followers of Jesus. Every single person in heaven will be a follower of Jesus. I recently read these statistics that 90% of Americans today believe that there is such thing as a heaven. But then when asked after that, if you have to believe and follow Jesus in order to get to heaven, less than 50% said that that was true. But we see here when Jesus speaks about heaven, he is saying heaven and Jesus are a package deal. You can't have one without the other. You cannot have heaven without Jesus or Jesus without heaven. They go hand in hand. So the question for us this morning that's pressing on all of us is not necessarily, do you want to go to heaven? The pressing question this morning is, do you want Jesus? Now, today, Do you want Jesus? And, and can I boldly and compassionately ask you, if you don't want Jesus today, what makes you think you would want him for eternity? 
Jesus himself said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't say, I think I'm the way. Or it's a good hypothesis that I am the truth. Or it is a well-educated guess that I am the life. He didn't say that. Jesus said, I am the way. And by faith in me alone, it is the only way into heaven because Jesus and heaven go hand in hand. And, and maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, I, I just cannot accept that. After all, I, I know that Jesus cannot be the only way to heaven. There are well-intentioned and good people, people we work with, people we love. And you're telling me that if I don't just agree with you, just because I don't agree with you that Jesus is who he says he is, that I'm going to hell, that I'm not going to heaven, I can't believe in that. There are too many good people. And can I just say, if you're in here this morning and you're thinking that, you are not alone. And I would say, if you are not asking that question, then you're not taking Jesus seriously. And here's what I want to say to you. Here's the problem with that way of thinking. And I want you to know also, I struggle with this question too. But I want you to think of this. Here's the problem with that way of thinking. Is see, that way of thinking confuses religion and grace. See, all world religions at their core basically teach this, that we accumulate a good record before God. And therefore, on the basis of that good record, God approves of us and he allows us into heaven. Grace, on the other hand, says, no, God accumulates a good record. And he gives it to anyone who wants to receive it as a free gift by placing faith and resting in Jesus. See, grace teaches that God approves of us not because of what we have done, not because of the good works that we have, not because of any religious activity that we do, but because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us have ever lived. See, so many think that following Jesus is a second chance. If it's a second chance and you believed in Jesus, how quickly did you burn that chance? <laughs> Probably as fast as you burned the first one. See, grace teaches that Jesus lived the perfect life that you could not live. He died the perfect death that you deserved to die. And then he gives himself to you as a free gift of grace. He gives heaven to anyone who wants to reach out and take it. That is grace. And I wanna say this as clearly as possible. So here's what I mean. God accepts us into heaven, not because of anything we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. That is grace. It is the undeserved, unmerited, unearned, free gift to us received by faith in Jesus alone. It's the only way to heaven. You know, I was, uh, I think I was probably about 12 years old and I was going through the Taste of Colorado Festival that takes place downtown in early September. And I remember I was walking through it and I was with my nanny and my two brothers and I was so hungry. I mean, I was starving probably the hungriest I've ever been. And I'm smelling all of these foods and I'm so hungry, but I'm afraid to ask my nanny for any money. So finally in the distance, I see a sign and it says free. So I sprint over to that thing, <laughs> right? And I get there and I grab this stale bagel, this hard bagel and I run and I sprint back to my brothers and I'm gnawing on this thing. And they look back at me and they're like, where did you get that? 
And I'm like, oh, check it out. Here, come with me. It's right over there at this sign that says free. And they looked at me and they're like, hey, Daniel, those are for homeless people. And now I think back at that moment and I want to say, no, the sign said free. But it's only the homeless and children who saw their need for it. It was only the homeless and children who couldn't pay their own way. Heaven is the same way. Heaven is not for good people. People who want to pay their own way, do their own thing, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves, not according to grace. Heaven is a place for those who are beggars, needy, people who cannot provide for themselves what they want and have to receive it as a free gift. That's why Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. He was saying, come, feast on me. I will give you the sustenance. I will give you heavenly life within yourself if you will just come and receive it. It is a free gift to anyone who wants it. What is holding you back? Do you want heaven? Then you have to ask yourself, do you want Jesus? Heaven without Jesus, it doesn't exist. Heaven is a place where the resurrected Jesus lives with his resurrected people on his resurrected creation. And that is our only hope of heaven. And it's for anyone who has ever lived and anyone who has placed their faith in him as a free gift. And now let me, let me finish on a story. This is an illustration, a story of a woman named Tess that I think really, really presses home the hope that we have here, the hope that, that God is trying to show us about heaven. This is Tess's story. Tess said, my, my crisis of faith happened in early adulthood. I was training to be a physician and I saw a lot. I participated in the care of an unknown number of tragedies. Seven-year-olds being thrown from pickup trucks, fatal automobile accidents, 25-year-olds being diagnosed with breast cancer and heart attacks on Christmas Day. I'd seen a lot and I'd treated a lot. In August 2012, my husband and I welcomed our third boy, Wyatt, in three years and life was near perfect. 14 weeks later on a beautiful and mild November afternoon, I returned from work into the blissful chaos of our home just when our nanny was waking our baby from his nap. Her screams of terror took several seconds to penetrate my consciousness. I walked into the bedroom knowing exactly what had happened. I knew why it had died before I laid my eyes on him. All my years of training combined with the incredible power of the Holy Spirit came over me. I called my husband, I told him, Wyatt has died, you need to come home immediately. And I performed CPR while on speakerphone with 911, but I knew it was just a formality. When the medical examiner arrived to take his body, I refused. I was not gonna give up without a fight or at least an argument with God. For one hour, my husband and I, along with our nanny, prayed for resurrection over our son. Actual physical resurrection. We asked as forthrightly 
as we could as we could to give us back our baby boy. God heard our prayers and he said no. In the end, the cause of death was positional asphyxia, sudden infant death syndrome. He wasn't even sick. My wife, Hannah and I, when we watch movies together or we watch TV shows together, she hates it because like I try and give a theological analysis of every single thing that happened during that show. In Tess's story here, there is something theologically wrong. When Tess and her husband and the nanny prayed for resurrection, God did not say no. He said, not yet. Jesus is the first fruits. If he was resurrected from the dead, then we have a confidence no child of God will be left in the grave. No child of God will be left in the grave. He has set us free from sin and death. He has destroyed death. And as a free gift of his grace, he has given us heaven and Jesus for our taking. He has prepared a home for us to be his resurrected people on a resurrected creation with our resurrected Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the free grace and eternal life that you offer us. Lord, we cannot earn it ourselves. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending your son to die the death that we deserved for descending into hell so that we could become beloved sons and daughters of heaven. God, I pray for those who maybe have never heard this message before. I pray that you would apply it to their hearts. I pray that they would believe it and that they would proclaim that you, Jesus, are their savior, maybe for the first time. I pray that you would do that powerfully. And I also pray for those of us who maybe have heard this dozens of times, hundreds of times, I pray that you would help renew our minds to help us to see just the great hope we have in Jesus and the great hope you have stored up for us when you come again to restore this earth and these bodies to remove sin and to have us dwell and live with Jesus forever. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for that message of hope. And we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.